My name is Sarah Condon, and um, I am really glad to be here with you all. Um, I'm an Episcopal priest in Houston, Texas. My ministry is to the students at Rice University. It is a job I love very much. I have two children, Annie and Neil, and a husband, Josh, and the three of them are the absolute light of my life, and I will be talking about that later. Um, why don't we, I have to pray for myself, sorry, Jake. Your prayer was so good, Jake, but, um, <laughs> but I'm really shaky this morning, so, um, so yeah. Gracious and loving God, um, we come to you this morning so thankful for hope, but also in the knowledge, Lord, that hope does not come without suffering. Lord, we pray for the people of Ukraine and the people of Russia today who um, are so afraid, Lord. We pray especially for children who are often the cost of war. And while we are praying for miracles this morning, Lord God, we, we come to you and we, we ask that Elon Musk would just shut Twitter down after he buys it. <laughs> that he would light it on fire and we would never have to see it again, Lord. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. We pray for the one who speaks this morning, Lord, because you know her sins are many. Amen. I have been, I feel like I'm clutching the water bottle because I'm nervous. Um, I have been writing for and speaking for Mockingbird uh, for nine years. I actually started writing for Mockingbird because of Simeon Zoll, um, because I was really frustrated with uh, something happening in the news. And he said, well, you should write that down. And that's how it started. And now we have this funny podcast uh, with Dave and RJ and myself, and it's, it's weird that people listen to it uh, for me, I'll be honest with you, because it really does feel like two guys that I get to hang out with who are dear friends um, and just kind of process the world with, so yeah. Mockingbird has kept me in ministry, but I would say even more than that, it's, it's kept me Christian. And it's especially done that for me in recent history in my life because it's been so profoundly marked by tragedy. Um, these are my parents, Owen and Deborah. I love this picture of them. My mom always leaned into my dad in photographs, and I actually find that I do that with my husband, just sort of intrinsically, which is really sweet. They were intelligent passionate, wonderful, and wounded parents. They had flaws and were sinners and desperately wished they had done some things differently. Um, if you parent adult children, one of the best gifts you can give them in this stage of your life is to tell them that you wish you had done some things differently. So do that in honor of my parents. Um, they also gave my brother and I art and creativity, and they put a very high value on being the weird ones in the room. 
which I think is like maybe a great theme for Mockingbird next year. Um, be the weird ones in the room. They were storytellers through their writing. My dad was a writer and through my mother's photography. And the fact that I'm even up here talking to you is a testament to their love and encouragement of me. But if you do not like me, I just wanna say to you that you can blame them, but they're dead, so you have to feel bad. <laughs> I'm so glad you laughed. It's really, sometimes people don't think it's funny. Um, <laughs> We lost mom and dad uh, in a terrible car accident on December 9th of 2020. It's weird, I've never been somebody who's good at memorizing dates and it, that one, it's just right here all the time. So we will hit our six month, or one year six month anniversary in May. It was as car accidents are, and I know there are people in this room who have lost people in car accidents because it's incredibly common. It was very sudden. It was brutal. I never saw their physical bodies again. I didn't see them when they died. I, I never saw them again. I saw them at Thanksgiving and they were dead two weeks later. Um, it was not their fault which I know shouldn't matter, but I can't even sort of like blame them for not being here. It's a weird sort of thing. I want to say that while this is obviously gonna be a heavy subject for me to talk about today, that I like to make jokes, I like to make a lot of jokes. Um, we have this weird thing culturally where we're like, oh, humor is avoidance or denial. And as someone who obsessively reads brain science books about grief, I can tell you that is not true at all. That actually humor is a, tech, a technique we've developed of, of surviving. So it's not denial, it's surviving. It's not thriving, <laughs> just to be clear. But it is surviving, so that's what I'm doing, okay. So I wanted to talk about this idea of hope for the home lost, and I really wanted to call it hope for the homeless because I just felt like that sounded so great. But my husband told me it would be an upsetting title for people if they came here expecting me to offer a solution to the homelessness crisis at a church in New York City, and that clearly is not what I'm doing. So he suggested hope for the home lost, which I really love. So. This is a photo of the house that I grew up in, and I think it says, the sign the name is that I think it says, God bless you, Owen and Deborah, we will miss you or something. It's their neighbors put it up in the front yard before my brother and I even got there. This is so powerful. They were such a fixture of the neighborhood. Um, home, this home was always an incredibly grounding place for me. We moved there when I was four years old, before my brother was born. Um, this is the house where I set up all my stuffed animals on the bed, the way my seven-year-old daughter does now. Uh, this is the house I had my first, like, really hardcore makeout session in. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, I was raised in the Episcopal Church. Um, <laughs> 
This was the house where I had to come home early from prom my junior year because my date was um, on probation for, I'm not making this up, for throwing rocks at moving cars. Um, and he had to be home at 8.30 and didn't tell me any of this when he asked me to prom and just weirdly dropped me off. And I sat uh, the room to the right of the front door. I sat there with my mom and cried and she held me. It's the house that I brought my husband home to meet my parents. It's, you know, it's the house we planned our wedding in. And there's, there's a whole chapter of this house just for my children. My dad was a reluctant grandfather. He lost his own father when he was 16 years old. And he told me when I graduated from high school that he never expected to live this long. So when he became a grandfather, he went by Owen, his first name. He wasn't sure if he was going to like it. And I gave birth to this, like, sci-fi, yo-yo-loving, I basically Justin Weber. Like, I gave birth to Justin Weber. And, um, and he, and they, they adored each other. And they spend so, they would spend so much time, my, my father and, and our son, watching my dad's favorite science fiction movies, right? They just, they had this deep love that was, that was just starting when we lost them. My mother was a woman that was like put on the planet to be a grandmother in such a beautiful way. She would buy all of these toys, like really crappy cheap toys, and um, put them throughout the day in a closet in the house. And she went by Cookie, so it was Cookie and Owen. I tried for Cookie and Oreo, no one let me do that, but anyway. And the kids would call it Cookie's Magic Closet. I mean, she was like actually magical to them. So in the four months following their deaths, we emptied the entire house and sold it. And for a very intense period of time, it was just all I thought about. The house was a five-bedroom, three-bath house because my parents had added offices onto it. So they worked from home. And so it really was sort of their entire existence in brick and mortar, right? It was full of, of beautiful furniture from a very specific era of the 1990s in the Southwest, which I now own with my brother. Uh, computers, camera equipment, Lots of cast iron skillets. Um, we found one million Bed Bath & Beyond coupons. We counted them. Um, easily the most mysterious thing we found, and I get asked this a lot, did you find anything you didn't expect? Yes, we did. Um, was this suitcase. And it was made of, I guess, aluminum. It was silver. It was really heavy duty. It said Halliburton on the side, which was even more mysterious. Um, my parents worked in agricultural chemical company stuff, um, so like, who knows where they got it. But, you know, we'd had conversations, is there another will? Do we need to go to the ends of the earth to find it? Is it full of cash? We would like that, you know. So, so my husband sits there and he dutifully is like, 
writing down the numbers and trying, you know, he's like, I can figure this out. We go through all the important dates. And finally, it's like, we're going to get a crowbar, right? So, so he gets the crowbar out and I'm standing over the suitcase and my mom's very best friend in the whole world is standing over the suitcase and Josh is opening it up. And he gets it open and it is full of sex toys. Like, I don't know how they closed it. Um, dildos, vibrators, I could go on, I won't. Um, I know that you didn't come here wanting to know this this morning, but I know it and I need people to share the burden. So that's what we're doing. Um, I have so many questions about this suitcase, so we're gonna just spend a minute on that. Um, did my parents pull out the suitcase to cue the other one to the evening's activities? Why was the code so long to get into it? Did they sometimes have what they called suitcase night? <laughs> like, it's just a lot of questions. My husband, who had no questions, um, <laughs> <laughs> no questions <laughs> was like he just like very quickly and respectfully like closed it and put it in the trash like there was no because like my mom and her my mom's friend and I are just like we're like what is it and he's like absolutely not and just <laughs> so <laughs> he was the best son-in-law to them to the end I really mean that we had to empty the house in waves because there was so much stuff. And so it was these monumental trips from Houston, Texas to uh, Mississippi. Uh, books and photography went first and then furniture. I vividly remember the last trip because I stood, um, I stood at the the intersection, the wall, and to the right was my parents' bedroom, and to the left was my childhood bathroom, and I hugged the wall. And my aunt and my uncle, who have stepped in so beautifully as parents to us, they were there, and my aunt hugged me, and my uncle hugged her, and I hugged the house. And it was this, you know, it was this leaving thing. And for over a year now, the house has haunted my dreams. I, I have a reoccurring nightmare that there's another room we haven't found full of stuff to go through, right? This is very common. I have this once a week and it's super overwhelming. But this one time I'm having, okay, so I'm in, I'm, we're like, we're, we're like, we're done. And then somebody's like, what's this door? And then we open it up and it's just like this mountain of stuff. Okay. But I, I want to be really clear with you. This didn't actually happen. We were not actually gifted these. My brain came up with this. Okay. So in the corner is my parents, but it's wax life-size figurines of my parents, like Madame Tussaud, right, in this dream. And I, I look at these huge sculptures of my parents, and I think, what am I going to do with these? How will I get them on my car? What will I tell my children that we have life-size wax figurines of their grandparents in our house? And in the dream, my dad, it's like he's reading my thoughts. He just calmly says, Sarah, you can't take us home. 
what will you tell the children? Remember, this is a wax figurine of my father. What will you tell the children? And I think, oh, thank God, like he gets it. And then my mother just, my mom just like turns like this and she's like, you can't leave us here. What are we gonna do? Melt. And I'm like, oh my God, you know. I wake up, I'm like, what is that a metaphor for? But that, dear friends of Jesus, is how overwhelming it is to lose both of your parents at once and have to completely unpack, undo, redo your childhood home. Which is why I really love this phrase, home lost. I don't want you to hear my story and think that it is this like far away, terrible thing that could never happen to you because it could definitely happen to you. It just could. Um, And I don't want you to think that your suffering in your own life doesn't compare. And I also don't want you to think that you couldn't have survived something this horrible. People will say to me all the time, like, oh, you're so strong. And it's like, no, I'm just still alive. You know, like that's what I'm doing now. Um, You could survive something this horrible. A lot of you have survived something this horrible. But I think what I want to say to you all this morning is that you are home lost too. Everything has absolutely fallen apart at some point in your own life. And, And if not, then you've just been launched into the panic attack that is being a person in the world. And I know this because many of you have told me the thing about suffering like mine is that everyone comes forward with their own. So I, so I know this about you. You two are home lost. Because of COVID-19, so many people have died in the past few years. It's actually deeply comforting to me that I am not alone in this profound grief because it really does feel like bodies everywhere to me sometimes. And if it is not the ghosts of people who haunt your dreams, then it is definitely the ghost of longing. That desire that your life would be different, that your marriage wouldn't end in divorce, that you had not yelled so much when your children were little, that you long for sobriety or for patience or for this like cosmic do-over that we just don't get. Um, I, I do not know exactly when Christianity became equated with happiness and easy answers. But I can tell you that it goes into high gear when death and suffering are the subject matter. Christians say really stupid stuff when people die, especially to other Christians. I have a whole talk I could do about how we should all be Jewish when people die, but anyway. (laughs) We all want to blame some like modern construct for this phenomenon, but You know, I'm not sure we can blame the internet for this, like, Christianity equals happiness thing. Because I think there have always been happiness heretics 
in our midst, right? Like, I mean, when Peter told Jesus he didn't have to die, wasn't he just trying to avoid suffering? Isn't that all that was? Don't worry, be happy, Jesus. Live, laugh, love, Jesus. It's five o'clock somewhere, Jesus, right? Like, it's just beach signs, you know, for Jesus from Peter. But for those of us who know we are home lost, there is a kind of answer in scripture, but it is not happiness. Home is no longer where you think it is, and perhaps our home is really in our suffering, in the going through it. We are told in scripture that suffering is actually our pathway to hope, which sucks but I think it's probably true. So we have this verse from Romans 5. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So I just want to spend a moment with you all on this verse because it is a verse that has been a steady presence in my life um, this past year and a half. The greatest gift of my loss, and to be clear, there have been a lot of gifts, but the greatest gift of my loss is that it was so cracked open and so devastating that even my ability to perform has been taken away. Which is someone who's like the firstborn daughter that did musical theater, it's very jarring, right? Um, But I now live in a space where my suffering is the only glory that I have. And I wanna be clear, I (laughs) hate the word perseverance. It's definitely in this verse. I do not like that word. It sounds like the name of like a high school yearbook or a naval ship, right? (laughs) It does. And yet this is exactly the word that has guided my deepest sorrow. And really from the start, people have had to persevere on my behalf, Um, which is, this is your advertisement for church. If you don't have a church, find a church. Because when you go through something like this, people will actually persevere on your behalf. You know, mom and dad died in early December. And like, I don't know, the next week, the week after that, the kids had that really stupid thing at school where they have to wear like a Christmas hat on Monday and then Christmas socks on Tuesday and then a Christmas shirt on Wednesday and then their Santa Claus on Thursday and then like their Jesus on Friday or whatever. And like... I'm like laying in bed, like my husband calls this my like um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory grandparent phase. Do you remember how they like never got out of bed, but they were like in the living room? That was me. So I couldn't function and I had this friend and she went to Target and she bought all of the Christmas nonsense and then she showed up at my house every morning, got my kids dressed in the Christmas stuff they're supposed to wear to school and took them to school. I'm just incredible. People showed up to move my parents' furniture into the house. I think they would still be bringing us dinner, honestly, if I hadn't told them to stop. And it was in this being held up and taken care of that I felt my very character 
changing. This word character is tricky for Christians, but I think your character changes when you suffer. And I think it changes when people step in to take care of you, right? Because what we know from research about children is that we can't teach kids empathy. They only learn empathy through situations when people have stepped in to take care of them. And so that has been true in my life and and in the lives of my children. Nothing shocks me. That's the other thing that I have to say has changed in terms of my character. Nothing shocks me. That could be the sex toy suitcase. I don't know. But it's... (laughs) It just took it right out of me, you know. And this leads us to hope. I have an undeniable, eager, inexplicable hopefulness about each day, one that I did not have before and I do not understand. So this is a photo of us with our kids. Um, Don't you like how my daughter poses? She's like, hi. I can't believe after all the loss that we've had that I still have these incredible children uh, that surprise me every day. Like, I'm so surprised by them all the time now. Um, I have a middle school son who wears fashion glasses, and it's my favorite thing about him right now, and um, it drives his dad crazy. And he's always like, I can't see your face. And Neil's like, but I look great. Um... And we have a daughter who has, like, the most amazing, like, curly slash straight hair. But whenever she feels like she's having a bad hair day, she'll come downstairs, like, completely serious. And she'll be like, Mom, I have comedy lady hair. I'm like, I don't even know. Like, have you been watching SNL from the 70s? Like, it's just like, where did you get that? Um, I just feel really lucky. A few weeks ago, uh, I got into a fight with two guys in an airport gift shop. Um, I did talk about this on the podcast, uh, not realizing that it was funny, uh, which is very true of things in my life. Um, I know you're like, what is she talking about? But anyway, I was in an airport gift shop. There are these two guys. They're like 55-year-olds, dad haircuts, sorry, everybody, uh, khaki pants, polo shirts, and there's a young black woman behind the counter and they have this back and forth with her. They belittle her a ton, tell her she should be smarter than the system. I was like, please don't do that. Um, And I intervene and they call me a snowflake. And uh, I was like, I'm a 40 year old mother of two. Um, And and then uh, they they told her, they asked her if she was a Playboy bunny because she had a tattoo of the Playboy bunny on her neck. And as someone who is from Mississippi, uh, that grew up around folks who would make choices like that at 14 and live to regret it for the rest of their lives, it was a bridge too far for me. So I stepped in. And I didn't step in in the way that I intended um, because I really meant to tell them off and it was, I was going to be, it was going to be like really good. And um, I was going to, I was going to use like a lot of cuss words um, because I like cuss words. And I turned to them and I said, you need to be better Christians and read the gospel. Just like that. (laughs) Just like that. And no one was more surprised than me that that came out of my mouth. 
I wasn't even going to tell you that because the point, I mean, the point of the story for me was my husband because my husband is like, it's a big airport gift shop. He's on the other side of it. Just like, I don't know what Josh thinks about, but you know, he's like looking at magazines, drinking his coffee, thinking about how much I'm going to judge him if he gets a candy bar. I don't know. And, and he's not paying any attention. Right. But he hears me yell and he comes like, running over and like doesn't even ask me what's going on babe I'm so sorry but I am at least gonna tell them the first thing you said he goes to these guys he goes stop being assholes and I was like (laughs) just like real plain and they're and they're so thrown right they're like fellow white man he's not on our side you know and they're like they're like crazy religious wife like it's so it's just like multiple layers. It's the law and the gospel, you know? And then he, he, he does say more grown folks words out. And Josh doesn't say a lot of grown folks words, but he, the spirit compelled. And so he goes out into the corridor because they scurry off and yells at them down the corridor. And then he comes back in super chill and he goes, hey, babe, what was that about? I was like, what? What? Like ready to fight with me and he has no idea why we're fighting or if I'm right it was like I just felt really lucky you know like I just I hope I hope you can have that in your marriage it's such a it's such a beautiful thing uh so my brother Aaron who like I can talk about my parents all day long and be fine it's hard for me to talk about Aaron without wanting to cry because uh, we're, we have a big age difference and we're so much closer. I mean, that has been a beautiful gift of this since we lost them. We're so much closer because we've had to be, it was going to go one way or the other. And I do want to say there are people in this room that when we lost mom and dad, they called me and they said, what can we pray for? And I said, you can pray that my brother and I won't turn on each other. And it worked. So thank you. Um, But he got married to this incredible woman named Ashley. I have a wedding picture of them um, in New Orleans. Yeah, they're so sweet. It was two days to the year anniversary of my parents' death. Bold choice. Um, I sort of forced the family to be Jewish and... um, we don't have good death rituals. This is not written down, but I'm just going to say it. We don't have good death rituals in the Protestant world. We don't dedicate masses. People show up with tequila. That's it. Um, and in Judaism, there's a whole uh, marked out year of what that looks like. And it's incredibly beautiful. And the more I learned about it, the more helpful it was. Um, so you do a yard site at the year anniversary of a death. And so I basically, we did morning prayer at my brother works at a church. We did morning prayer with his priest at the church and the whole family came. And that was sort of this moment before we went into the wedding. I have to tell you, because I learned this recently and I loved it. And it feels brutal. I know this will feel brutal to those of you who have lost people. But in Judaism, this year of Yartzeit is really important because the day of the Yartzeit is the day that your grief is over. And I kind of wish I'd known that because we, this wedding was just, I was so anxious about it. 
so worried I was going to cry through the whole thing, right? And everyone just showed up. I mean, this picture, everyone is just so beautiful. And, you know, the real adults showed up, you know, like the elders, you know what I mean? Like, sorry, but people who are 60 plus, like, I was like, oh, thank God, there's parents here, right? Because we didn't have any. Um, The last of my grandmother's siblings showed up. So a child of the depression. Uh, People flew in from California, Somebody drove from North Carolina in an RV. He was very worried about parking in New Orleans. Uh, it was so beautiful. They, they, my brother and sister-in-law, they hired a poet, and we danced, and we sang, and it did feel like a relief from the grief. I don't know, or, or dancing in the grief. Um, it was just beautiful. All of this makes me feel very lucky. But more than that, it makes me feel hopeful. It makes me feel like I can go on, like I can keep doing this. It makes me feel like we can all go on, like we are not alone. And I did not see this hopefulness and love as clearly before we lost mom and dad. It drives me crazy when people say like, oh, it took like a natural disaster for us to come together. Why does it take a natural? Well, that's the only way you get it. That's just it. You don't get to make a trade. I'm not in charge of the trade where I get this kind of love and hopefulness and I lose my parents, right? This is just what I've been given. We can't get all the goodness without the suffering too. That's just, that's what it is. That's what that verse says. All of this makes me feel less home loss because my home lives in suffering and persevering and character and in hope. The thing about that verse is that it is, it is not like this is a linear process, right? It's not like, oh, well, you did suffering and now you're going to leave suffering and you're going to head into persevering, right? It is all things at once. It is like so many things in the Christian life, it is cross-shaped, right? Just constantly intersecting. And I think this is home for me now, this, this intersection of all these things. I do want to say, I think about the afterlife all the time, all the time. Um, I know you'd be more comfortable if I called it heaven, but I'll be honest with you, it's hard for me. It's still hard. And it, like, if I were you sitting in the pew looking at me, I'd be like, oh my gosh, but she's like a Christian and a priest. I'm like, shouldn't she? Yeah. But like, it's hard when it's that real. Um, but yeah, so I think about the afterlife a lot. I do wonder if my parents are with me. I hate when people say that to me. It's okay if you've said it, but like, when people are like, they're with you, I'm like, are they? How do you know? Um, Part of me hopes that they'll show up as ghosts, like, every night. I'm like, tonight's the night. Um, (laughs) I used to be, like, super skittish about dark rooms and stuff, and now I'll just go in them and turn off the lights and be like, are you there? Um, Recently, I closed myself in a uh, church kitchen closet, which is the creepiest place on the planet, and there was no sign of them. I tried. Uh, For their sake, I do hope the afterlife does not involve following me around. That sounds really tedious. Um, I do wonder if they get to finally rest 
and the final part of this verse. I wonder if they get to rest in hope, right? It makes me wonder if that's, that's the rest for all of us in the end, is, is living in the final part of that verse. I was a wreck about where they were when they died. Uh, I just, it was, it was just so hard to see them and then them not be there and not have any sense of their bodies. That was very difficult. They were cremated, so it was like I never, and I didn't even go to identify bodies. My aunt and my uncle did that very, very difficult work, so... Um, so I worried a lot. I worried about my mom a lot because for her, church was incredibly tedious and had only gotten more so with age. And, uh, you know, if we get any sort of visions of heaven, there's like stuff in the Psalms, but like God's throne and like walking in and like praising. And I was like, oh my gosh, mom is going to freak out. You know, like she can't be doing that all the time. She's going to need a break. Um, And I was genuinely worried that she was furious with my father because he was driving. And even though it wasn't their fault, I just, I knew that she was going to be furious with him. I kept imagining them, this is so weird, but at a bus stop, that was like the vision I would have. That they like, they like died and they just like woke up and they saw each other and like at this bus stop, right? And my mom looks at my dad and, and she yells and they were yellers. So she yells, um, what have you done to us at my dad? And it was like the most painful thing to think about. And my brain would just loop it. And I finally burst into tears to my husband, Josh. You know, people say like, uh, especially in more progressive traditions, we'll be like, well, your, your spouse can't be your priest. Your spouse can't, you know, be your whatever, your pastor. Well, they're wrong. They're wrong. Because my husband said the only helpful thing to me about the afterlife. Um, I, I said, this is what I'm saying. I'm seeing mom and she's so mad at dad and she's, she's yelling at him. And, and my husband said really gently, he said, oh, babe, babe. They got to heaven and they were their most whole and beautiful selves. And they looked at each other and they said, oh, there you are. And this is a photo I think of when I tell this story. First Baptist Church at Skeen, Mississippi. It's their wedding. This is hope to me now. The insane brevity of life, how it all just gets swept away in an instant, how we do not suffer alone, the feeling of wholeness that comes from the love of one another and really the love of Jesus. And so I wish that you would see your own home lostness, and I wish suffering for you. More than that, since I know you are already suffering in so many ways, I wish that you would lean into it, that you would know that you are not alone in it. And I want you to know that at the heart of suffering really is hope, and at the heart of hope is Jesus you know, uh, Dave Zoll actually came to my parents' funeral, which is, was a remarkable feat because it involves flying into Memphis, Tennessee, renting a car and driving through the Mississippi Delta to stand in someone's front yard and be fed tamales. Um, but he did it, and we were hanging out later uh, eating Popeye's chicken. And <laughs> it was a lot of eating. And um, my brother had given the eulogy, and I had not. And, and Dave said, 
you know, why didn't you give the eulogy? Like, clearly, you get up in front of people and talk. And I don't remember saying this, but Dave said to me that I said, um, you know, the rest of my life will, will be the eulogy. So this felt like a little bit of that for me. And I hope that it wasn't too self-serving. And I hope that you were able to gain some, some relief from your own suffering in the midst of it. And I'm so grateful that I got the chance to get up here and tell you about mom and daddy, Deborah and Owen, Cookie and Owen. Thank you. <laughs>